the old pilot's plain tales. If it ain't Boeing, like so many immigrants, Wilhelm Boeing, spelt B-O-I-N-G, had emigrated to the United States in 1866 to make a new life in the young country. He left behind a well-to-do family in Austria, and with little money of his own, he made his way labouring. He met a lumberman, Karl Ortmann, and worked with him until he married his daughter. Soon he was able to go into business for himself, harvesting the mineral and lumber resources of Minnesota, becoming a rich and successful man. His son, William, was to grow up with the anglicised surname Boeing, with an E, and he was given an elite education at a Swiss boarding school and then Yale University, studying engineering. When his father died, he used his inheritance to build up his own successful timber business. In 1910, he attended an air show in Los Angeles, which sparked a lifelong interest in flying. This blossomed when he met a Naval Academy graduate, George Westervelt. Through him, he got a flight in a Curtis seaplane and decided to become a pilot himself. After learning to fly at the Glenelg Martin Flying School in LA, he purchased his own Martin Model TA seaplane and assembled a crew to help him maintain it. Although he loved flying, he wasn't impressed with the performance of the seaplane, particularly when someone crashed it, and became convinced that he could build something better. His personal wealth gave him the opportunity to throw his hat into an industry that already had 16 other US firms to compete with. With his friend Westervelt, they constructed their first aircraft, an improved version of the Martin Model TA called the Bluebill, later to be named the Boeing and Westervelt B&W-1. Its keel, wet and glistening in the sun, first broke clear of the water on the 15th of June 1916, and the Boeing Company was officially born on the same day when William filed Articles of Incorporation for the Pacific Aero Products Company. William knew that the market for aircraft would be small, but then came the First World War, and when the United States declared war on Germany, he saw his first real opportunity. Working out of their first home, plant number one, the Red Barn in Seattle, they improved on their original design and presented the Navy with their B&W Model C. Sufficiently impressed, William got an order for 50 machines worth over $12 million in today's money. Now named the Boeing Airplane Company, they set to work. Only two years later, they were building Curtis seaplanes as well, but when the war ended and the demand died, William was forced to reduce their payroll from 337 people to only 67. The post-war depression hit Boeing hard, and the era of regular passenger travel was still a long way away, but they found an avenue in mail flights from Vancouver to Seattle, 
albeit 25 miles north of Seattle, as their aircraft were a bit short of range. Boeing branched out with furniture making to keep his woodworkers busy, and then he got a contract servicing military aircraft. His relationship with the US services paid off when he won a contract to build 20 bombers for the US Army. The Boeing GA-1 and 2 were heavily armoured triplanes that the Army designed and Boeing built, but the contract was soon cancelled when they were found to have poor visibility, climb performance, manoeuvrability and range. It was rumoured that a GA-1 survived until 1926, and Kelly Field pilots who behaved badly would have the threat of flying it held over them as a punishment. Then came the Contract Airmail Act of 1925. This act freed the Postmaster General from restrictions that prevented him from using private companies to carry mail. William bid for and won the contract to carry airmail from San Francisco to Chicago on a price so low it was almost thrown out for being completely unrealistic. In the Boeing Model 40A, a biplane powered by a Liberty V-12 water-cooled engine, the newly formed Boeing Air Transport Company was created. By 1927, over 2.5 million miles were travelled by U.S. airmail service planes, carrying over 22 million letters. The revenue that Boeing created allowed it to expand into passenger services alongside the mail in the same aircraft. By 1930, the company was carrying 30% of the air mail and passenger traffic in the States, and in recognition of the company's achievements, Seattle named their first municipal airport Boeing Field. At the dedication ceremony, William Boeing declared the day was just about the happiest one of my life. When changes to the Airmail Act impinged on Boeing's success, the company decided that a bold move was required and they created a design for the Army's new long-range heavy bomber, the XB-17. This massive, heavily armoured and powerfully defended four-engine aircraft impressed the Army so much that despite killing the Army and Boeing test pilots in a crash during a competition fly-off, they ordered 13 for evaluation. The press soon coined a name for this awesome aircraft, the Flying Fortress, and it went on to serve nobly in every World War II combat zone, and nearly 13,000 of them would be built. At the same time as its bomber development was having such success, Boeing was producing one of the most iconic flying boats ever to grace the seas, the B-314 Clipper. The largest civil airliner in the world, it operated with Pan Am and carried up to 90 passengers to destinations all over the world. Built for luxury transoceanic air travel, it featured sleeping accommodation, a lounge and a separate dining area serving six-course meals cooked by chefs from four-star hotels on gleaming silver platters. The B-17 bomber was only the first in a line of successful collaborations with the US military. 
It was followed by the mighty B-29 Superfortress, one of the most technologically advanced aircraft of its era, with many new features, including remote-controlled guns and increased fuel and bomb loads that also made it the world's heaviest production aircraft. The B-29 would draw the war to a close when it dropped nuclear weapons, the first ever to be delivered in anger, onto the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan. After the war, B-29s were adapted for roles such as in-flight refueling, anti-submarine patrol and weather reconnaissance. Another wartime development was the conversion of the world's first pressurised cabin transport, the Model 307 Stratoliner which had many components from the B-17 into the C-75 military freighter, which had a new and unusual circular fuselage cross-section. The P-29 and later version the B-50 would get the same treatment when they were redesigned into the C-97 Strato freighter with its iconic double-bubble fuselage. It served in the Berlin airlift as well as both the Korean and Vietnam wars. The civilian version, the Strato Cruiser, would become a great success and serve with airlines all over the world. Following the development of the first turbojet engines, Boeing was in the forefront of large aircraft design with their six-engined B-47 Stratojet strategic bomber. It was first flown by test pilot Robert Robbins, who had been sceptical about the aircraft, saying that before his flight he prayed, Oh God, please help me through the next two hours. Robbins soon realised that he had an extraordinary aircraft on his hands. It proved to be a record-breaking design, and in 1949 took all the coast-to-coast speed records. It remained the backbone of SAC until late into the 1950s when the B-52 Strata Fortress entered service. Initially designed as a replacement for the Convair B-36 Peacemaker, this eight-engined swept-wing monster was to rule the skies and be a workplace for generations of pilots. Hardly a sleek design, it quickly earned the nickname Buff, for Big Ugly Fat Fella. Other versions are available. Despite more advanced aircraft coming onto the scene, such as the Convair Hustler, the North American Valkyrie, the Rockwell B-1 Lancer, and the Northrop Grumman B-2 Spirit, the Boeing design proved to be a vital part of the Air Force's inventory from its introduction right up to the present day. With a combat range of well over 8,000 miles without refueling and a weapon capacity of 70,000 pounds, it presents a formidable deterrent capable of carrying the fight to just about anywhere on the globe. During Operation Desert Storm alone, the B-52 flew about 1,620 sorties and delivered 40% of the weapons dropped by coalition forces. In parallel to their success with military aircraft, Boeing was soon to become dominant in the world of civil airliners. They weren't the first on the scene with a jet airliner, that honour going to the troubled de Havilland Comet, but their first would become a great commercial success. 
A follow-on from the Dash 8, the 707 truly opened the jet age to passengers and it would serve with over 150 civil operators throughout its life and a great number of air forces as well in both its civil and military versions. Although described by pilots as being agricultural and having some tricky handling difficulties, many concerns were allayed when Boeing test pilot Tex Johnson demonstrated a barrel roll in a Dash 8 over Lake Washington near Seattle. As competing aircraft arrived on the scene, such as the Douglas DC-8, Boeing responded by developing and improving the 707 to keep their market share. They widened the fuselage and even built a short-range version, the 720. The original Dash 8 design would also be used as the basis for the KC-135 tanker and E-3A WACs, both still flying today. Boeing again showed its flair for innovation and design when it introduced the 727 onto the market. This mid-sized, three-engine, narrow-body airliner with a T-tail housed its third engine in the base of the fin and kept a clean, uncluttered wing that was highly efficient. The wing's array of Kruger flaps, extending leading-edge flaps and triple-slotted Fowler flaps produced an excellent lift coefficient that allowed operations from small runways while still giving the aircraft a long range. The 727 was to be Boeing's only trijet, and it proved very popular with its pilots. It was a reliable and versatile aircraft which became the core of many airlines' fleets. The successor to the 727 was the ubiquitous 737. Originally designed as a shorter-range, lower-cost aircraft to complement the 707 and the 727, it has grown to become a world-beating design. So successful was it that it was stretched and developed from its original 115-seat design to one that could carry twice as many. To accomplish this, the design has grown by nearly 50 feet in length. So versatile and popular since its introduction in 1967, 10,500-737s have been built. It can be seen in countries all over the world and it has formed the backbone of many famous airlines and military versions serve across the globe. The story of the Boeing 747 deserves a tale all of its own. The design started as a need to fulfil the USAF's requirement for a very large strategic transport aircraft, a competition that Lockheed would win with the C-5 Galaxy. Even before Boeing lost, one trip, president of Pan Am, had asked for an aircraft with twice the capacity of the Boeing 707. Joe Sutter took over the design and from his team's work came an aircraft known and loved in every corner of the earth. From its double-deck fuselage, reached by a beautiful spiral staircase, to its excellent handling characteristics, it would herald a world of air transport that everyone could afford, and it became the darling of the flying public. Boeing famously bet the company on the success of the 747, as Pan Am wanted only 25, and Boeing needed to build 400 to break even. It was a gamble that paid off and bore them great success. 
Boeing understood that the economics of the big twin-engine airliners made sense. Over the years, they have produced a family of big twins from the 757, the 767 and the fabulously successful 777. I wish I had time to describe them all, but needless to say, each in turn was a groundbreaker and immensely popular, but none more so than the 777. And I look forward to seeing how the latest version, the 777X, with its folding wingtips, gets on. Since it first entered commercial service in 1995, it's gone from success to success, and sales of this long-range widebody have now exceeded those of the old Queen, the 747. Nowadays, the flagship of Boeing's range is the 787 Dreamliner, a state-of-the-art computer-driven aircraft that is capable of competing with the most advanced airliners flying today. Sadly, I haven't been able to touch on all that Boeing have accomplished by a long way, but I've done my best to pick out some of the highlights. Of course, not everything Boeing has touched has turned to gold. Boeing's 1957 submission for the Mach 3 long-range supersonic bomber competition was a monstrous design incorporating jettisonable outboard fuel tanks to feed the era's notoriously thirsty engines, each with their own wings and tailplane as big as a B-47. When he first saw the 42-inch model, General Curtis LeMay barked, This is an aeroplane! This is a three-ship formation! Boeing's enormously expensive six-year foray into supersonic transport also ended up in disaster with little to show for the vast sums invested in the failed design than a mock-up. 60,000 layoffs followed and a billboard was erected near SeaTac Airport in 1971 that read, Will the last person leaving Seattle turn out the lights? Its most recent troubles concerning the development of the 737 MAX have also had a strong negative impact on the company, and many are rightly concerned that the hard-earned reputation built up over the past 103 years has been irrevocably tarnished. Without doubt, it has had an enormous impact, but Boeing has a historic strength and powerful following that will undoubtedly see it through. I feel sure that it will rise above this worrisome period and people will again feel confident to say, if it ain't Boeing, I ain't going. If you enjoyed this story, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.